A grassroots church is uh, it's a really lovely place to be part of. And uh, one of the things I love about it, kind of our, our motto, our, our byline, so to speak, has kind of become a church for people who want to love like Jesus loved. And we want to be people not just who can learn to serve other people and not just learn to uh, show expressions of love to those around us of warmth, but really to begin with, able to open our hearts wide open to the love of the Father and then be transformed in those deep places so that we can give love and the Jesus kind of sacrificial love to those around us and everyone we meet. And at church, you might say, Keith, so you're saying to me that if I'm here at grassroots long enough, I'm going to be transformed like that. I'm going to start loving like Jesus. And my promise is emphatically, yes. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're about. And so uh, there's many ways to do that. And part of worship and entering into our worship space this morning is to open our hearts to God and to let him do that transforming work in the deep places. But it also is... uh, one of the best places is in small communities. Uh, great thing about grassroots, a beautiful thing right now, is that it's kind of beginning to be about a size to where not everyone can know everyone. It's not possible. You can't know people's names and what's happening with their kids and what's going on in their life. And it's, it's not possible, and that's okay. You know, God is blessing us in a season where, where we're kind of moving from a family to a village of families, so to speak. And so... Uh, you come on Sunday mornings, you worship, we enter in the presence as the congregation. But then, if you want to be known by someone, you've got to find a different way to do that here at the church. And uh, the best way to do that is to be part of home groups. And to me, in my experience, home groups are the best way to, to get this love muscle going. Because, you know, in life we can, we can relate with friends, we can... Uh, connect with people who are like and that we agree with. But in home groups, you're put together with a group of people that you, not nece- you wouldn't necessarily choose to be with, but who are your spiritual family, your community. And we're, when we're in those relationships where we're opening ourselves up over a season to people who we may not choose to be with on our own, something happens and we begin to learn to love a little more selflessly. We get our edges rubbed up against each other and we have to forgive each other and we have to Uh, really open our eyes to listen to what every person's story is because every person is overcoming something. And we really can't be in fellowship with them until we really listen and hear. So Home Group Ministries is designed to do this. It's a a group of people that you're uh, covenanted to be with for a season of time. Uh, I just did my first uh, season of, of home groups at Grassroots. We went 18 months together. It was a beautiful time to, to get to know, but now we've disbanded and we're re- getting reshuffled so that we can uh, don't just sort of create little pockets of clicks. So um, get involved with home groups. I really encourage you. It's one of the best ways to start growing that muscle of loving someone who's not like you because guess who the great person is who's, who's not like us? His ways are higher than our ways, the Bible says. So if we have any hope of getting to know God and loving God, we have to be able to relate with an other. Uh, And home groups are a great way to do that. The the leaders had uh, a retreat this weekend at uh, Dorian Bible Camp. Uh, This is last year's retreat. We don't have a fresh picture yet. But these are the home group leaders who are together designing the ministry, moving it forward, and encouraging, uh, encouraging this lovely thing called small groupings of Christians and seekers of God uh, together. So if you're interested in this, if you want to get involved with this, uh, the best way to do that is to come to the Discover Grassroots, uh, Discover Home Groups dessert night. Uh, October 3rd, a couple Thursdays from now, there'll be 
Will it be a chocolate fountain this time? Am I promising too much? Um, there'll be some dessert here for you. And it's just a chance for you to come, explore, ask questions, uh, see, what, see what it's about. And then the leaders will be able to shuffle you into a, a, a grouping of people. Uh, if, you, if you don't or aren't able to make it to that night, you can still get involved. Uh, best way to do that, you'll see in the seat back in front of you there, there's like a... I'm new to grassroots card. You can use that for home groups as well. Just uh, There's some at the booth back there as well. Just sign, sign your uh, name to that and uh, give it to the booth person back there and we'll contact you and remind you that that's coming up. Also, uh, we have our Discover Grassroots card out and available. That's at the info piano and at the uh, booth back there. And it's got all the important dates of the things that you might want to get involved in to get the most out of the community. So community of people after Jesus' selfless love. And this is a season in which we're going to be exploring direct on some of our heartbeat here at Grassroots. Uh, I began last week into a small series, four-week series on looking at the love of the master. What is Jesus' love like? And how is that different than the love which we encounter in the world around us? And you might be asking the question, it would be a fair question to ask, why are we going to explore love anyway? Isn't that straightforward? Don't we all know what love is? Aren't we all in this search after the, this thing called love? Is, is it just, does it go without saying? It's kind of a treasure that a lucky few can achieve and, and find, and the rest of us are kind of in our long hope after it. Uh, but part of the reason why I think it's worth a season to think about love is because, as it is, if you don't know this, our culture today is dictating and setting the terms of engagement for this word and it's so different than what the Christian word means. Uh, I don't know. I, I mentioned last week that uh, I, I had maybe watched once or twice this thing called Days of Our Lives. Hand, show of hands, Days of Our Lives fans, don't be shy. All right, I got one honest person back there. I haven't seen it in a while. But I grew up on this show. Like, my mom would uh, say, all right, you know, we have lunch. It's before elementary age. You know, she'd sit me in front of a TV and... Bo and Hope and Bobby and Billy and John and Marlena. See, I can do this. <laughs> These were my uh, role models growing up. And uh, needless to say, when I got of dating age, uh, that was quite a train wreck. Um, but our culture, it's in our face. We're in the grocery stores. We see coupling happening on the magazines as we go through the aisles. We watch TV shows. We watch uh, commercials. It's about coupling and the happiness found there. Our culture is dictating for us what this word should mean. And let me suggest today that what it's doing is filling our heads with lies. So what's the search for love? What is it telling us? It's the search for happiness. Search for love is the search for a soulmate. Search for love is to find someone who completes me. The search for love is finally to feel wanted. And you see that the common theme, I think, through all of those ideas is the search, as if love is somehow external to us, and if we could just find our way to it, like a, it's on a treasure map somewhere, we could finally achieve what the uh, whole point of life is. But it's so, this vision of this kind of love is so different than what the scriptures give us. I mean, just in this one little passage, remember, John, Jesus is teaching in, here in the Gospel of John, talks about it. No one has experienced a greater love than this. Someone putting his life on the line 
for a friend. And you see, there's nothing about searching there. It's not, it's not a search. It's not something external that we have to go and find. This is, we're in a different universe of ideas. This is also not erotic romance language, is it? It's friendship language. This is line for a friend, philos, the Greek word philos. It has nothing to do with romance. It has to do with friendship. Um, focus isn't being on, comp- on being completed, on feeling wanted. Uh, we're not even in the same solar system of ideas, are we? There's no greater love than anyone has experienced in this than to lay down one's life for a friend. And it's not, we're not even on the receiving end of that feeling of love. The, the completion of love in this instance is the, the act of giving yourself away. So just, not just because our culture is leading us in the wrong directions filled with lies, um, but it's when we get there, when we go where our culture is leading us, it's oftentimes deadly, kind of a deadly experience for us. I think of words like fleeting feelings or infatuations or attractions or lusts or bodily passions or desires or taking what we think is rightfully ours, chemicals firing, romantic feelings and all these things that when devoid of love, when love is not part of those things, leaves us feeling empty and defeated and dirty and hopeless. That's where our culture wants us to go and I think it's worth a season of exploring what selfless love is. Because maybe, you know, I believe that the universe is built on the DNA of selfless love. We know somehow deep inside of us that to give ourselves away is what this universe lives upon. And we kind of know that, but we experience so much of the other stuff that we forget what the real stuff is like. We feel that true love should lead us to adoration of God, not suspicion. And oftentimes we can feel suspicious of God. And can we make the connection between so many people in our lives loving us impurely, using us, abusing us? And we project that on what God may be about. And instead of adoring God, we come to be suspicious of him. And instead of trusting one another and opening ourselves up to true love, as one Christian writer put it, um, We are free to give real love. So to discover true peace, true intimacy, true connection, that which lasts with God and others, true love moves in a completely different direction than where our culture is leading us. So over the course of this year coming up, this is a kind of a year type of time frame, I'm going to be unpacking this for us a little bit through different kind of mini-series. So we're starting here on Jesus' love so we can Refresh our memory. What is his love about? And then we're going to talk about relationships next, how relationships work and don't work based upon this principle. We're going to talk about uh, marriages in the new year. We're going to talk about parenting and not just loving kids, but loving parents who have, uh, you know, you adults who have parents, loving parents. Um, We're going to talk about all of this when it comes down to some really practical ideas. Uh, But what we're offering, I mean, what we're looking for is this true peace and intimacy that our master is showing us. Last week, last week I opened this up with uh, remembering how Jesus fed 5,000 people while he was running on empty, while he was grieving and exhausted, and he performed one of his most famous miracles while he was at one of the most emotionally low points of his whole ministry. If you missed that uh, message, you can go back and listen to it online. It's up on grassroots.church and uh, this, the podcast section. Uh, He's in emotionally lowest points, but here we find him with no bitterness, 
No begrudging, having to help exhausted and hurting and lonely people who are coming after him in this low time. Um, Jesus' Jesus's love didn't operate in these kind of well-confined, well-confined space of a managed life who I'll let you in when it's my, good for me and I'll, I'll, I'll love you when it's good for me. He was open to people when they needed him. Um, and sometimes it drew him way beyond human limits into seasons of endurance and service. Some of you may know what that feels like. And so for the next three weeks, today, next week, and finally the week next, I'm going to be continuing to open this idea up. What was Jesus' love like? Let's look at him. Let's look at his actions. Let's look at his teachings. And what we, what we see in the middle of his ministry as he begins to teach on this are some ideas emerging. That love has nothing to do with self-preservation. That it's actually cross-bearing and emptying. It has nothing to do with exalting ourselves, but finding the lowest position, the lowest places of honor, and seeking those. That's when true love begins to fire. It has nothing to do with self-righteousness, but... Jesus opens this understanding of how forgiveness works in true, true love. So this is, these are the ideas that we're going to be unpacking in these next three weeks. But today, self-preservation. Love is not about self-preservation. And to get into this idea, we have to remember, once again, uh, situate ourselves into the middle of Jesus' ministry. What's happening to him? What, what's going on in his life? He's gathering a crowd. He's doing so many amazing, powerful teachings and has done so many amazing healings that people are starting to catch drift of this guy and they're starting to follow and crowds are starting to gather in great proportions. John, his cousin, has been beheaded by an imposter king, Herod. And because of this, Jesus retreats in a boat with his disciples and for some respite. But 5,000 people clamor after him and he heals them and he feeds them and then he goes and prays and then he walks on water trying to open up a little bit for the disciples of this idea of who he is. And all around him, there's this growing awareness that he's not someone ordinary. This is a very special individual. And the murmurings are beginning to rise that maybe this is the David's son who we've been waiting for all this time. Let's crown him the Jewish prince. Let's follow him. And this is beginning to, beginning to happen. But Jesus' vision for ruling is going to be so different than what other people have imagined. He's, he's going to begin opening up just what his vision for changing the world is about. And it has nothing to do with kingdoms of this earth. And it has nothing to do with palaces and luxury. It has everything to do with giving one's life away for a friend. The very DNA and building block of what Christianity is about. So around a campfire one night, Jesus was sitting with his disciples and just tossed out the question, who do people think I am? Who are they saying that I am? And Peter uh, or some of his disciples you know, chime in. They think that you're the great prophet Elijah, old Jewish prophet who had died many, many hundreds of years ago, back to bring us to God. Or maybe you're like the prophet Moses, here to guide and lead us. But Peter stands up and says, no, you're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the promised one that God is going to send to us. And Jesus must have been so filled with pride. Yes, you understand. You catch it. You understand who I am and, and what, what I'm going to be. And, um, and Jesus said, look, you, can, you didn't come up on this on your own, Peter. But this could only be have, have given to you from God. God revealed this to you. 
And so you keep hold of it. And at that very moment, um, as Peter realized this, Jesus begins to reveal to him and to his disciples what he's going to be about. So from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. So this marks a turning point. The scripture says from this time on, um, he's going to start predicting that his way of selfless love is going to ultimately get him killed. He's revealing the heart of his method, his strategy, and what he thinks this world is all about. And Peter, the one who at one moment actually stood out and walked on the water, and who the next moment was drowning because of his fears. The same Peter, at one moment, was revealed to him who Jesus was, and he had the correct understanding of Jesus and what he was about. The next minute, he's going to sink again just in the, the, uh, into uh, the uh, ideas that uh, are completely like a riddle to him. So Peter took him aside and said, he began to rebuke him, never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. We humans are so funny, aren't we? Like one minute we can have just this great awareness of who God is, this moment of clarity, and the next second we can completely miss it. We can be completely wrapped up in what Jesus said here in merely human concerns. And just like with love, we can at one minute maybe get just this clear instinct to serve another person and to give out of ourselves. But the next instant we're just wrapped up in merely human affairs, human intrigue, and human concern. Um, I mean, how quickly our minds turn. And Jesus is saying, guys, you have to see what I'm doing. I'm going to go on a cross. I mean, we don't know. It doesn't really say that Jesus knew that his destiny was going to be a cross, per se. But we know that he knew he was going to be killed. Um, he knew he was going to open himself up to deep wounding and to ultimately uh, die from what he was about to do. And Peter can't even fathom this. Uh, Peter doesn't understand that self-protection is the thing on which the kingdom of Satan is built. And so Jesus is going to try to kind of a little less than gently <laughs> let Peter know that he's uh, wrapped up in the wrong kind of thinking. So self-protection, let's just talk about that for a second. What is self-protection? If, if love is not self-protection, then what do we mean by self-protection? And I think, of course, when you know, a, a nation state is being invaded by an enemy and there are missiles coming and troops coming, you can imagine this is a very clear instance of self-protection. We mount up our troops and we get ready to, to defend and protect ourselves at all costs. Um, but I think, okay, if that's an extreme kind of helping us understand self-protection, we also have to, to begin to see it on playing or playing out in our everyday lives. So, like, what happens when we make a mistake? It's a little mistake. No one really knows about it. And I kind of can gloss over it. Isn't that, a, isn't that kind of a pattern of self-protection? I'm going to protect my reputation from something I've done. What about sort of like in a relationship when someone really wounds us, when someone really hurts us? Do you know what that happened? What happens to human beings? Our hearts start to close off. We're not as open. We're not as uh, 
hopeful as we, we once were. And our, our heart, we start to protect ourselves. And you can almost sometimes see people bracing themselves in vulnerable moments um, as if they're going to be hurt. Uh, we do this all the time. Self-protection is our default when it comes to our, our posture. But psychologists know, and if you read, read up into self-protection, uh, self that if we do this too much, well, then we start to self-sabotage. We start to close ourselves off from the good things in the world. We start to close ourselves off from tenderness and affection and all the good things in the world which are meant to come uh, into us. And phobias and anxieties and self-defeating patterns can kind of arise when we've got self-protection going on. And I guess what I'm saying is at the gut level, human beings are self-protective. We do all sorts of things to be self-protective. But Jesus is saying to Peter and he's saying to us that my way of life moves in a completely different gut-level direction. Can we gut-level learn not to self-protect? And so Peter, he gravitates in the wrong direction, showing us just how much self-protection is at the core of his heart. Um, and so Jesus, trying to gather this up and take this moment which should be filled with elation and joy for being known by his disciples, is now another teachable moment. So Jesus brings out one of his most memorable and key teachings. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And immediately we have to see here, I mean, if, if you don't know any other Bible verse, this might be your one to memorize, to get it deep inside of you. Because when you do, you, you begin to see that there are three things going on here, three separate things. And oftentimes people say, I'm taking up my cross, I'm following Jesus. And that's one of the, two of the things, but there's a third thing here. First, deny yourself. That's the first part. First, deny yourself. That's different than cross-bearing. Deny yourself. Then take up your cross. And the third thing is, Jesus is saying, if you at all want to claim to be my representative, <laughs> you'll do these first two. Anyone who claims to follow me will be doing these things. So what does it mean to deny ourselves? This Greek word is aparnesa. What does it mean? How is it different than cross-bearing? And what do we do with the wisdom of self-care? Okay, I'm going to open this one up here for us today. What do we do with the wisdom of self-care? Um, we know that burnout is bad, right? And self-care is a good thing. We have limits as humans, but so far Jesus' ethic is trying, or it seems like he's telling us to transcend those limits. Um, we know self-depletion and self-denial are kind of different things. So what is denying ourselves? What is this crucial key aspect of being a follower of Jesus? Now, to help us here, we have to understand another little Peter moment here in the Gospels is that when Peter denied Jesus, I don't know the man. I know him, but I don't know him. It's the same Greek word, apernesa, which means how can we, like Peter in that moment, like he denied Jesus, how can we deny ourselves? Like we don't even know us. So, anyway, to unpack this a little bit, to unpack all these thick ideas, um, I'm going to start off with the truth, because uh, it's, it's, this is a thick forest to get through here. So I'm going to start off with this idea here. You cannot deny yourself if you have no self to deny. Okay, I'm going to pack this. Um, Self-denial, contrary to what we might think, does not mean self-loathing. It does not mean self-loathing. 
um, as if Jesus was saying your desires and your dreams and the way God made you and the way he puts you together are worthless. Um, it's true we are weak, but we're not worthless. Okay? It's true we're limited, but we are set a little above the angels in our estimation in this creation with our creativity and our imaginations and our dreams and our hopes. And let me tell you that denying yourself is not to put that stuff down. It's not what that means. Um, Christianity does involve self-care. It does involve self-discovery. But those aren't the ends of themselves. So here, to, to, to unpack this a little more, the way that you see this playing out in, in any place more than others is in relationships. And we talk about the word codependency. Um, which means that in a relationship, there are dynamics of power that are going on, and one person or both people are looking away from what's really going on to preserve some sort of status quo, to preserve the peace. Right? Um, these are oftentimes unbearable dynamics in relationships. Have you been in a relationship and the dynamic of a codependency that I'm describing is like unbearable? How much longer do I have to live in avoiding the truth of what's happening here? And we think to ourselves, deny ourselves. Just put up with it. Just deal with it. Just go on as if things are, are normal. That's not what denying ourselves is. And when abuse and violence come into this scenario, and when one person is holding physical, emotional power over another person, denying ourselves is never simply submitting to those powers of oppression and abuse. Something here in this kind of setup needs to be um, smoked out. Um, something needs to be addressed. And so, uh, you know, I love, how, I love this, um, this, this quote here. The way of the cross is about how self-denial exposes powers that be for what they are. It means us entering the vulnerable spaces of declaring what really is rather than clinging on how we hope things are. In broken systems, this truth-telling feels like death but it is the only chance of gaining a new or resurrected life. And if you're in a relationship where this kind of dynamic has become toxic and abusive, you've got to find help. Because the only way of resurrection is to tell truth and expose, but it can be very dangerous. So if this is the situation you're in, probably the wisest is to find a trusted friend, come talk to talk me or a pastoral staff here, and, and find a way to get help in order to confront some of these dynamics. Because when Christians oftentimes hear this, deny yourself, and they're in these kind of relationship setups, which are sadly more common than we'd like to admit, we think denying ourselves means simply just to live within these things. And that's not what cross-bearing is about. Um, denying yourself and taking up your cross sometimes maybe be keeping your mouth shut to bear, another, bear one's, someone else's brokenness. But when there's abuse there, we've got to tell the truth and we've got to expose these powers. I love this. The quote goes on. The cross is not the way of self-depreciation. It doesn't tell us that we deserve nothing good or beat down the human heart as unlovable or unworthy. But it does ask us to be honest about where real life is found and where artificial life has been manufactured as coping mechanisms to distract us from finding that real life. And here we go, this heart of it. Through weakness, powerless, and death, grow victory, strength, and life. Like This is what denying ourselves and cross-bearing is about. But so many people are out of touch with who they are, what they love, what they, what they, 
what they dream about, what their aspirations are. Uh, so many marginalized people, so many people broken and pushed down by systems are told, well, okay, your identity has taken away, been taken away from you, but you should just deny that and deny yourself. This is not what denying ourselves is about. Um, denying ourselves is actually, ultimately, um, it usually comes from a position of strength, not weakness. So, um, but here's where I tell you this. Christian life does involve self-discovery. It does involve speaking truth. It, all, it does involve self-care. But those are not ends to the mean. Those are not ends. The end is not for you to know yourself. The end is for you to know yourself so that you can, like Jesus, give that self away freely. This is what, this is what Jesus is talking about here. So self-denial, what is this? If, if it's not all these things that I've been describing, what is denial? Um, it's a willful ignoring and withholding of that which we think we need. Deny yourself. Practice as Christians. Practice as brothers and sisters. If we're going to be followers, deny yourselves. Be content with the necessities of life. Don't go searching after all the extras. What is, what's one thing this week that you know you don't need that you can deny yourself of? Ignore what others think of you. <laughs> Denial is, you know, we walk around and we think so much of ourselves. We think so much of who we are and, and what we are in this world sometimes. And when others question that or tear that down, it can crumble. But denying ourselves is going, I know I'm not, I'm not going to pay attention to that. Deny the American dream, friends. Deny the American dream because it's just built on a whole way of self-preservation that will lead us to ruin. So here's the thing. Ultimately, discipleship takes obedience. And we can't be serving two masters. Jesus says this to his followers. Um, oops, I forgot that quote. Oh, here it says to his followers. What good will it be if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? Um, you've got to be able to be obedient because um, cross-bearing, the next step, that's what requires some serious obedience. And I love this quote someone once said somewhere. <laughs> you are ready to carry the cross only when yourself is crossed out. So take up your cross. It's the next part, the next phase in this all. What does this mean? And generally what I think of uh, as your cross is it's the, the situation in which you find yourself that you're, call, that you're called upon to carry. Life situations come and they, they present themselves to us and oftentimes they take a lot of sacrifice they take a lot of energy, and they take a lot of effort. So what is that for you? I mean, it's different for everyone. What's the cross that you bear? Is it physical? Do you have a physical infirmity that you must live with and bear? Is it a relationship that you're in, which, after all, uh, isn't what it originally had promised to be? What's the cross that you are called on to bear? And Jesus says, take up your cross daily. Luke, Luke adds that word in there, daily. Take up your cross daily. And follow me. Uh, so we don't know exactly what Jesus had in mind here. Just because this was before his cross. Not sure if he knew that that's where, exactly where he's heading. Um, but he, he pulled upon this image. And the cross in his day was something that was full of pain. And needing lots of endurance. Something that was filled with shame. I mean to hang naked. You're going to die naked in front of your family and friends. It's filled with lots of shame. Whatever your cross is, it's probably going to feel like that. Deny yourself, 
take up your cross and follow me. I don't really have to go too much further into that because you could probably already know what is the cross that you're being asked to bear. But here's the thing. Renunciation alone, like just denying yourself alone doesn't make love. It doesn't, you know, you, you think of um, a situation in which someone is just, they're just withholding all the things which they need and they're just so bitter about it. They're so angry and they're just like, oh, I just, I'm always serving other people and they're just, they're just bitter and, and angry about that. And that's not the way the scripture talks about love. It talks about love being given freely and openly. And uh, also, cross-bearing doesn't equal love in its own right. We've got a lot of crosses we can go through. A lot of things we bear and are asked to bear in this life. Um, but you know a lot of people who are carrying a cross and are kind of vile about it. Um, I, was, I, I, I say to Eve sometimes, I've seen Christian organizations um, that are kind of like turn in against itself. And it's like a bunch of people hanging on their crosses yelling at each other. <laughs> you know that image? <laughs> it's so painful, I hate this, that's ah, your fault, you know? You know, that's not a happy place to be. Uh, Self-renunciation, cross-bearing does not equal love. But renouncing yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus, there's the key element. If you put all three of those things together, love begins to brew. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul put it this way. Um, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. I love this, because we know here Paul's not talking about physical martyrdom, because that's one way to be crucified. But he's talking about, I have already done this. Paul's saying, in the past, I have been crucified. This is a lifestyle, a daily thing that he goes through. I've been crucified with Christ. And there's the renunciation. I no longer live. There's the second piece. And here's the third piece. But Christ lives in me. And we know that Christ lives in us when our renunciation and our suffering become something that delights us deeply. This is, the hard, this is the hard edge of the teaching. When all of a sudden that the focus of our life is not on the pain. Our eyes are not fixed on how hard it is. Um, I love this. One person said, denying your own needs isn't to be more attentive to other people's needs. That's not Christianity. Denying your own needs not to be more attentive to other people's needs, but to be more attentive to what God is asking of you. And when we do that, when we take our eyes off of all the people who are getting what we're not, and all the people who are, whose, whose life is, is uh, beginning to live because we've poured out our lifeblood to them, we have our eyes fixed on Jesus and recognize, this is what God is asking of me. And something, a peace washes over us, an awareness that what the universe has asked of me, what God has asked of me, um, I'm, I'm bearing with him. He's, I, I'm no longer living, but he is living within me. So Jesus, when he teaches these things, you know, he, he, he teaches about this everywhere. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Unless a kernel of wheat, and he brings us this beautiful imagery from creation. Okay, this is the universal DNA kind of principle happening here. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it will produce many seeds. Those who love their life will lose it, while those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And here's where I tell you, if you've struggled with this language, Jesus is not saying hate in the, word, in the way that we think of it. Like I loathe, again, I don't, it's not loathing your life. But you treat your life as if um, others are more important than you. 
And this is a universal principle, and we live within it as Christians. It's the only way for us, and it's the, the heartbeat of selfless love that we talk about. And yeah, okay, I'll just admit this. You know, like when, when we really open ourselves up to what this means, when we're really listening, when our ears are really open, it really does horrify us. It's like someone pulling a mask off and there's gangrene that's eating the face off. Like, what are you saying, Jesus? You want me to, den to deny myself, take up my cross, follow you, shame, pain, suffering? And it's like, it horrifies us to really take in what he's saying. But this is what he's saying. He takes the mask off and we find out ultimately um, that this is what the whole thing is about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, has this lovely little section on this passage. And I love this quote. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. As if some of us will have our crosses someday to deal with, but our life should be happy and go lucky all throughout. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. If we want to have any fellowship with Christ, we'll have fellowship in his cross. There's no discipleship without it. We can't put our crosses on the shelf for a while until we recover. That's not how Christianity works. We do need Sabbath. We do need restoration. We do need rest. But the very thing which is causing you to say, this is my cross, is the very thing which Jesus is saying, follow me, take it up. Life and true love, true intimacy, true peace is on that pathway, not the other. Um, so what? <laughs> so what do we do with this? <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more and open, continue to open up this idea of selfless love and really what it means for us as Christians and how we become to embrace it. Um, but what do you do? I would suggest if you, if you don't know what to do from this message, one thing you can do is go home and read Matthew 14 through 17. This is where this teaching is found and you get the whole narrative through there of what Jesus is talking about. But journal. I'm, I'm inviting you to become people who journal because really it's the only way to cross bear that I know of. Um, what, is, what is the cross that I'm called to bear in my life? What does it mean for, to fix my eyes upon Jesus? I mean, think about those things. What is, it that, what is the cross that you've been bearing and what does it look like in the midst of it when it's not going away to fix your eyes on Jesus and let him live in you in the process, which, which is the key to it all? What, that might, what might that mean for you? So do some journaling. You could even do it this afternoon. Uh, and come back next week for some more. More of this good news. It's good news, friends. If we listen, if we live into it, this is the only way to life. And ultimately, we end kind of where we began here with the resurrection. Jesus said, from that time on, he began to teach his disciples that I must go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the elders, and I must die. But it doesn't end there so that I might rise to life again. We end with resurrection. This whole thing is about how life really works, how it really lives, and not just gets destroyed uh, in the end. And this isn't just about, I believe, our physical life, our eternal life, how someday we'll be re resurrected, but this is daily, an everyday thing. What in your life needs resurrection? Is it a dream that you had that just never came true? Is it a relationship that needs life support? Is it the aspirations or the, f the faith that you once had that's died? Can, how can that live again? It's, a way, it's only way, through the way of the cross, not through self-preservation. Has your confidence died? Has your deep feelings for another person died? 
The way isn't through self-preservation. The way is through the cross. That's what Jesus is teaching us. There's only one way to resurrection, and that's selfless, selfless love. There's only one way to the resurrection, and that's selfless love. So I'm not sure what's hitting you today, friends. I'm not sure. This is, this is like Jesus' hard teachings, and when he taught it, people left. You know, it's hard. It's not easy, but we, we discovered that there's a, the treasure is here. So I'm not sure what's hitting you or, or how, what this means for you today or this week or how you go about living your life, but I guarantee something's happening inside of you. you know, I believe God is here stirring. You may remember nothing I've said today, but you may remember something that's starting to stick with you. So I invite you to think about that. In the next couple songs that we have to sing, it's a time to respond to God. What we do is we take what he's been given to us uh, in this time and we lift it up to him. We offer it back over as our prayer and trusting that he will continue to work out the things which he's begun in us today. So as we do so, one of the best ways that I know uh, to take this message in is through this physical symbol that Jesus offered to us. On the night he was betrayed, he washed his disciples' feet. He said, I give myself freely to you. He denied himself, was about to take up his cross and offered himself freely. He said, this is such a hard way and such a counterintuitive way and the world's going to push you in the completely other direction. When you gather and do this, remember that this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. This is the way that I'm calling you to live in. And so we do this as thick as we may be uh, of understanding this way. We take the bread in, dip it in the juice, and we eat it. And we take it and digest it inside of ourselves. As a prayer almost to say, God, uh, we don't always love your way, but your way is the way. So we open ourselves to you. So whatever prayer you have in your heart, whatever you're left with today, I invite you forward. The table is set, and everyone here is welcome.